You're listening to highlights from One Planet podcast interview with Armand Cohen, the executive director of Clean Air Task Force. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. At the end of the day, the industrial civilization that we've created over 200 years has resulted in an enormous amount of economic growth, at least in parts of the world. And uh, living standards are much higher than they were 200 years ago. But the consequence of that was because all of that wealth and industrialization was built on consumption of fossil fuels, we're now emitting 40 billion tons of carbon a year. And in many parts of the world, a lot of other nasty stuff gets emitted with that, like sulfur dioxide, which creates particulate matter, which impairs human health and leads to the vast majority of those deaths that you spoke of, a, an enormous number of air toxics that have all kinds of health effects, as well as ecological damage. Human beings drove that process. It was the machines that we use. It's the combustion of coal, oil, and gas in factories and in cars to produce electric power. When electric power came on the scene 120, 130 years ago at mass scale. So we look at it from the standpoint and what we're as an organization trying to do is really fundamentally switch over the technology that we use in society to technology that is high emitting today, 80% of the energy we use on the planet comes from fossil fuels with no scrubbing of carbon. So 80% of our base is from this planet damaging resource. And how do we flip that around to zero so that we have zero emissions, essentially, or near zero, as close as we can get? And to do that within a matter of 30 to 40 years after it's taken 200 years to create the system we have. So you can see the size of that problem just by stating it. Energy is something like 10% of the global economy, so it's not a small sector. It employs tens of millions of people, if not hundreds of millions. It's the basis for many economies in the world, if we look at the Middle East their economies are dependent on fossil fuel production. There's a huge political economy around this. So as an organization, what we do is try and create the conditions through technological research and development, through policy, and through changes in business practice to get all those high emitting machines to be retired or converted to things that are low emitting. So we work to push renewable energy very hard. We have wind and solar now which is much cheaper than it was 10 or 20 years ago. That didn't happen by accident. It happened because multiple societies, Germany, the US, China even, decided they wanted to move that technology at scale. So there's a whole process here of change over a period of several decades. CATF sees its role as catalyzing that change by being able to maximize our opportunities for renewable energy and then figuring out what else we might need. Let's start with renewables because there's a lot of exciting stuff going on there. We are looking at a whole generation of additional solar resources that could have much higher efficiency. So there's the whole body of research going on in that space and promising still a lot of it's still lab scale, but advanced materials, advanced electronics, all of that. Wind energy, some great developments going offshore, particularly floating offshore. Wind could be a huge resource and again, initially quite expensive, but we're beginning to see Europe deploy floating offshore in the deep offshore where you're talking about you know, several hundred meters or even a thousand meters depth. And you're really talking at that point about not anchoring things to the seabed floor. That technology is very rapidly advancing. Energy storage is, there's a, just a lot of money going into that space. Energy storage is very important. 
because wind and solar fluctuate not just by day, but by multiple days and sometimes weeks and months. If you're going to go very heavily on solar and wind, how do you balance the times when neither of them are available? What a lot of companies are working on the storage options that would fill multiple days or even weeks of low wind and sun. Another area that we focus on is super hot rock geothermal which is basically just a way to get a lot more thermal energy out of the earth. Today, when we talk about geothermal energy, we're really talking about pools of hot water that are pretty close to the earth's surface. And there just aren't many of them. We all know about the iconic geothermal in Yellowstone National Park in the U.S. This technology, super hot rock, actually goes into the dry rock that's more like two to three to seven miles into the earth where you've got 400, 700 degrees Celsius rock. And what one would do is basically create an artificial geothermal pool by injecting water into rock, which would heat very rapidly and turn into a supercritical fluid that can then be piped back up through another pipe to the Earth's surface. And uh, all the really costs is the drilling. There are a lot of technological issues there. People are experimenting with different kinds of drills. The advantage of that technology is that it's everywhere on the Earth. There's almost nowhere on the Earth that if you drill down a few miles, you're not going to hit hot, dry rock. Very interesting technology because not only is it everywhere, it could be relatively cheap and it's 24 7 365 so you don't really have to worry about sun or wind it's always there so you could use storage to complement it but or you could use it to create hydrogen using the energy to create. and then advanced nuclear is interesting let's talk about fission first which is the nuclear that we know you're sitting in france and as you know 70 percent or unfortunately right now some of your plants are down but nuclear is proven in the past for many countries like france and sweden and Belgium to provide a very significant share of energy at low carbon. And in fact, initially, France, when it deployed its nuclear plants in the 1970s, not for climate reasons, but just to get France off expensive oil, it, within a space of 20 years, France had gone from no zero carbon energy to 70% or 75% zero carbon energy. So we've shown in the past that that technology can scale. We can get into reasons or discussion about why it's not scaling today. I think it has to do in a nutshell with the fact that we never really designed an industry that could build multiple repeated versions of the same design. And even France lost its way on that. It was doing a really good job of building inexpensively and bringing costs down. But then as, and this was true in South Korea, uh, as well as in Japan, that as you got out of a standardized product and in more into bespoke or customized plants, costs went up. We can reverse that. We can go back and to the way we used to do it. But right now, nuclear is a promising option that is not being deployed because the fundamental model that we have of deploying it is deficient. Then the third category of things that are developing right now are what we call carbon management strategies. For example, you could burn natural gas in a power plant and then extract the carbon from the smokestack, put the carbon underground, or you could separate the carbon prior to the combustion process and just have basically a hydrogen fuel going into the combustor. So this is a way of continuing to use natural gas without having any carbon emissions or any other emissions, because if you have to scrub the carbon, you have to scrub everything else. So there's just tons of options out there. This raises a larger point that even as we move to advanced technology, there's still this problem that 80% of the world's energy today is coming from fossil fuels, from oil, gas, and coal. So what do you do in the meantime? Because every molecule we put into the atmosphere of carbon is going to be around for another 50, 100, several hundred years. The warming impact will be with us. So turning down 
the spigot, so to speak, really quickly is also important. The long range is important, but what do we do in the meantime while we're still very fossil fuel dependent? So eliminating methane is one big thing we can do. It's an easy lift relative to everything else. So let's just do it. And then capturing as much carbon as we can while we're developing the renewable strategies. In the meantime, let's take the industrial facilities that are the big emitters, the steel plants, the cement plants, plastics plants. Let's put some carbon capture on the back end where we can. It's not cheap, but it is doable and it's doable fairly quickly. It's a hard thing for people to accept that you have to be doing some damage control, even as you're working on the long-term solutions. But I'm afraid that it's a complex and big problem. So we have to think of it as first aid before you do the surgery. We have to stop the blood from flowing first, and then we can get the patient into the operating room and really do the deep work we need to do. So that's where I think we're at for the next couple decades. But there's this interim problem of plugging the leaks, as you called it. I'm very optimistic if you think about technological progress in the last 100 years. Okay, maybe we don't solve this problem in 25 or 30 years. I think we solve it in 60. It's just things are moving too fast. I'm seeing too many good things happening and too much money going into this and too many brains not to believe that we're going to make a significant amount of progress. So yeah, don't despair. And so I would say the good thing about technology is it can move very fast. And so my advice would be, if you're interested in this topic, if you have a mathematical, scientific, or business orientation, or you just like solving problems, you're that kind of person, get trained to really be part of the technological business revolution that's going on right now and join up with companies that are doing clean energy work or work for an electric utility that's got the right commitment. If you're a policy person who doesn't like mucking around with numbers, then train yourself to understand the complexities of this and go into government or work in non-governmental organizations like mine and bring your brain to the table. If you're a campaigner, if you just like organizing, then bring some of that to the table. So there are many ways that you can move forward. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening. <laughs>